Hello, and welcome back to Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And every fortnight during season, we tell a story from the rich and varied history of Sydney and its surrounds. Last week, Alistair, or last fortnight, should I say, I told a story. Do you remember what it was about? I do. It was a, an ill-fated voyage in the very early years of the colony, um, trying to make some money off rum, but they got a little bit stranded in the Bass Strait. And then there's quite an elaborate story of what happened after that to try to alert people in Sydney um, that there was some rum and a lot of shipwrecked sailors that needed to be saved. And a brilliant cryptic clue, as I recall. A clue so cryptic that I don't think I could ever possibly have got it unless I happened to be very well versed in this yeah. story. Well, yeah. unfortunately you weren't, although that was good because then there was no one to fact check me. Uh, yes, I told the story of uh, the Sydney Cove, the ship, rather than the, the cove, uh, which is more conventionally discussed, <laughs> and Preservation Island and Rum Island, which were so named because of the role they played in that story back in the late 18th century. Nearly every word in the clue was a pun. Yeah, <laughs> yep. I sure did invest a lot of time in that clue. But not this week, although I'm getting ahead of myself because it's not about my upcoming clue. <laughs> it's about... I think most people are here for your clue. <laughs> just skip to the end. It's about your episode. And you gave me a clue last week, which, which I already know the answer to um, because you've been hyping it to me personally for some time. But uh, could you please refresh our listeners yeah, so a far less punny clue and a lot more long-winded and potentially just an informative introduction to the actual episode <laughs> itself. But he here we go. Here's, here's the clue. So, well before the gold rush of the mid-1800s, there was another resource extraction boom that was instrumental in the expansion of the early colony. The rush for what was known colloquially as red gold dominates the foundation of places like Kayama, Maitland, and Byron Bay and it became the third largest export for the nascent port of Sydney. While the boom is long gone, its presence is still to be observed in many of the older buildings in Sydney today. Mm-hmm. Very exciting, very exciting. I'm informed. I've been introduced to the topic. Yeah, not really a clue this. Well, I guess, no, it is a clue if you, were, if you didn't already know. Um, but Jed, you do already know uh, what this is about. So I was thinking, actually, what better way to kick off than you to reveal what the... Uh, episode is about and maybe just talk quickly through what you know uh, about the topic yes definitely uh it's about red cedar what i don't know about red cedar is its scientific name it's tunis something or other i think yeah but colloquially known as red cedar and what i know about red cedar was that it was one of the most interesting and prominent tree species along the new south wales eastern seaboard and sadly today, it's not particularly common to see in the wild because, well, it makes amazing furniture, obviously, and, and wall fixtures and all sorts of things that people in the 19th century liked to make out of wood. And so in, I think, the early 19th century, people just went absolutely crazy going, exploring and chopping down these amazing, humongous rainforest trees and uh, stripping them out of the place. So now when you go to these forests, there's no big giant trees anymore. It's all sort of like eucalypts. And I think we kind of get used to like eucalypts being the big trees in Australia, but these guys were like next level, as I understand it. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's kind of an exciting story. I think that it appealed to me, the romance of it as well was what you were talking about there, that it's something that was would have been so 
excitingly dominant in these lush rainforests and you would have seen these enormous trees that would have been really awe-inspiring and you just can't see them anymore because they're not there and so it's the really lost part of australian history and the australian natural environment that yeah very interesting to learn more about what it what it was actually like when these cedar cutters first entered these rainforests to to extract all of these trees from them yeah well i'm looking forward to hearing much more about it because it's right up my alley and um, I've just given you a rundown of everything I know. So everything else will be fresh information. Yeah, awesome. Well, uh, before I begin the fresh information, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the lands upon which this extraction of red cedar trees took place, which for the areas around Sydney, Sydney Harbour and Sydney Cove didn't have any red cedar, which we'll get into. So it's the Hawkesbury, uh, which is uh, the land of the Darug Nation, down in the Illawarra, um, down past Kayama towards um, Shoalhaven, uh, which is the land of the Darawal language group, and then also north of Sydney, so basically all around Sydney, but not Sydney, so along the Hunter River, which is the land of the Wanarua Nation. Of course, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which I'm recording right now, which is the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And Jed, I believe you're in a new land. I am constantly moving around. I'm on Darug land this fortnight out in Rose Hill near Parramatta, which is also another interesting place in the, uh, in the early history of Sydney as a colony. Home to Elizabeth Farm, I think it's called, which yes. was the original inhabitation of the MacArthur's, I think. Yes. As you can see, I haven't actually researched the history of Rose Hill this week like I did with Manly. I have some fun facts for you about Rose Hill, actually, as well. Please. The wife was Elizabeth MacArthur, I believe. Mm -hmm. John MacArthur was the incredibly powerful, but also by the end of his life, completely insane man about town who is probably best remembered for being very instrumental in the importation of merino sheep and the beginnings of the merino wool industry in Australia. Mm. But also, Rose Hill was the name given to the what we now think of Parramatta, which was a settlement very soon created after Sydney. Cove was inhabited by the colonists because they realized they couldn't grow very much there and there were better fields to grow different types of cereals around what we now know as Parramatta. They called that Rose Hill to begin with, but then they changed the name to what was taken to be the Aboriginal name for that local area, uh, which is Parramatta, which I think is often thought to be something to do with eels, I believe. Mm. But Rose Hill still survives as a name uh, of kind of the area quite close to Parramatta, right? But it was historically the, the name of Parramatta itself. They saw some beautiful red birds uh, flying around that area, which they hadn't seen in Sydney. And they called them the Rose Hiller birds. Yep. And then good. they really slurred it together a lot. And they're now known as Rosellas. Awesome. That is a very fun fact. Yeah. So that, that's another way that the, um, the very early colonial name of that area is still in the common parlance with the name of that bird. Excellent. Well, thank you for giving some background to where I'm recording this week's episode from. And without further ado, let's hear about Red Cedar. Yeah, right. So let's get back to the Sydney Cove and that kind of difference between the the geographies of areas around Sydney. Because I think now that you've kind of mown everything down and created lots of suburbs and built environment, maybe you still notice it if you're very observant, but maybe a lot of us just go about our life not really paying great attention to the different types of soils, for instance, in different parts of Sydney. But when the First Fleet decided to create their settlement on what now is known as Sydney Cove. They arrived with fairly poor quality axes and saws, and they were completely inappropriate for the incredibly hard wood of the eucalypts in the sandy soils around the harbour where they kind of first set up camp. 
So there was, I imagine, a lot of swearing and complaining about how unbelievably hard this wood was and how difficult to work with it was. Yeah. Do we know why they got given such dud saws? Is it because no one foresaw that eucalypt was hard to cut through and they were used to just cutting through pathetic pines or (laughs) was there a stitch up? Yeah, I'm not 100% sure because I know that Philip really kind of campaigned to try to get that first fleet particularly well appointed. Don't just make this a suicide (laughs) mission where you set off off with awful late amounts of food, blah, blah, blah. So it was actually fairly well appointed and was only later fleets that kind of were death traps being sent there. But obviously this didn't extend to the the metal cutting implements. Mm -hmm. I... I imagine, as I was wondering the same thing. My notes here, I wrote, I, I take it that Cook and Banks hadn't done a very good job of finding out about the quality yeah. of the timber. Yeah, I think that, that they were quite disappointed with what they found compared to the accounts that the written accounts that they'd read of Banks uh, of what the kind of natural <laughs> scenery was like. And yeah. I think maybe he just didn't do a very good job of investigating or reporting accurately about the very particular nature of the trees in that area. He was an extremely excitable naturalist. Yeah. <laughs> Not a man tasked with building a hundred dwellings. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't think he'd built a dwelling in his life. And <laughs> he was just, yeah, he was all for it. But that was definitely, yeah, kind of a, kind of a difficult thing to begin with, especially when the, this is a society that building things out of wood is very dominant part of their construction techniques. And also when you're first jumping off a boat after sailing for many, many months, you're probably trying to build a house quite quickly. And when you're struggling to get any kind of purchase on the trees around you it would be very frustrating mm. so they went look about elsewhere in the harbor well not quite yet first i'm going to tell you about the different things they tried to come okay. up with so and, well first i'm going to tell you how un- i'll get some quotes of how unhappy they were so surgeon general white claimed that the local timbers were the worst any country or climate have ever produced and they were very unfit for <laughs> building is at such odds with a quote i dropped from um fanny mcclay at the end of last season who ragged on Sydney mercilessly. Actually, or, or did she say the same thing? I thought she found the trees to be quite interesting. <laughs> she found them very ugly to begin with and she changed That's her right. tune, didn't she? Did White have yeah. a similar epiphany later in life? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. <laughs> not on sure, the record. Uh, but we will get down to what Content, who uh, did did initially very disappointed, but then he was part of the, the parties that set out and found Red Cedar. So he would have learnt some more things about the timber and probably Mm -hmm. changed his mind. So this is also particularly important. I was saying they were trying to build houses, but also this is um, the age of sail. They've obviously sailed here. (laughs) And in an age of sail, your boats are all built of wood. Ships are really the things that are driving the global economy as it is at that time. So it's it's basically as significant as oil is today to their economy. Um, So there were some hopes that Sydney could be useful for building and repairing boats of the Royal Navy when the fleet was first sent out. That was kind of perhaps what it might turn into this nascent colony. And so Watkin Tench was very disappointed to find that every species of wood hitherto found in the country, this is after being there for maybe a year Mm -hmm. or two, is so exceptionally bad as to utterly forbid every intention of converting it to nautical purposes. (laughs) I feel kind of proud of Australians wood for being so absolutely useless to them. Yeah. (laughs) Except for Red Cedar obviously is about to let us down here. Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely some actual letdowns for the the British were um, the Norfolk pine, mm. uh, which they initially were very excited might be useful for masts. So straight. So straight. <laughs> and they, you know, Europe had a big problem at this time because they cut down all of their trees, basically, their old forests. And so they didn't have very much accessible 
big, tall, straight wood, and they needed it for all of these boats they were trying to build. So it was a very significant resource. Sadly, that really didn't work out. It, Norfolk pine is quite brittle, porous, has a tendency to rot. It didn't, it didn't go very well. They also wanted to use flax from Norfolk Island, which is, again, the reason why this was one of the very first settlements, even though it's this far-flung island off the coast. Mm. Uh, but the flax didn't work out for making the cloth for sails themselves. So that all kind of amounted to nothing. Uh, so it's not going very well. Yeah. Uh, for building houses, I thought this would be interesting in terms of trees. They they had to find some kind of native timber to use and they weren't having any success with eucalypts. And so one tree which they were actually quite enthusiastic about to begin with was the cabbage tree palm, mm-hmm. which you still see around Sydney today. Uh, they would not be the original ones. The original ones were all cut down in this initial enthusiasm. But it, luckily it's a tree that kind of spreads over much larger areas. So you can replant them in Sydney area. It's the really, really tall, very, very skinny palm tree that has like kind of just a little bit of foliage up the top, but often it's so high up you can't see much, many of the details. Yeah, I think you, we think we went hunting for them one day, walking around the Botanic Garden, um, and they're a fairly popular landscape tree in Sydney. I, I think, I mean, you do see them in in habitat, but I feel like more often they're not there, like surrounding an apartment building or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and they're not to be confused with the other introduced palm that's very common as well, which you were telling me a bit more about, Jed. It's the one with the very, very spiky bits. That mm, the phoenix dangerous. palm. Right, and that one's generally a lot shorter and has much more dominant wide foliage kind of thing. Yeah. And very spiky it's bits. It's thicker and, yeah, it's full of knives, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so watch out for that one. But the uh, cabbage tree palm, very friendly, beautiful, and obviously very, very straight and tall, so quite good for trying to get planks out of. So this is a quote from uh, Collins. He uh, reported that when cut into proper lengths, this cabbage tree palm uh, was very good for making the sides and ends of buildings. And he said, when plastered over with clay, that this formed a very good hovel. <laughs> and that's the, this is the highest praise for the uh, carpentry use of any any tree native to Sydney. Yeah, I thought I had to include that because I thought the phrase very good hovel was very amusing. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if hovel was used somewhat differently in that time. But. Yeah. Doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they were quite excited. They could kind of cut it into lengths and then cover it with clay and make, make a building out of it. I think it was used so extensively to begin with that, as I said, they probably cut it all out from around Sydney Cove and then they would actually send long boats down to B- Double Bay and Vaucluse where apparently there was lots more of this cabbage tree palm. Very, very enthusiastic. But then sadly, however, within kind of months, the buildings were completely falling apart because although it's very nice and soft and easy to cut down with your blunt instruments and you can put it into nice straight planks, it was quite poor quality timber it had a tendency to rot very quickly and warp and twist and yeah that these these hovels were soon not very good hovels anymore at all yeah looking at a cabbage palm it doesn't strike me as as uh, being especially productive timber but good on them for trying (laughs) it doesn't have a feeling of sturdiness with it does it (laughs) Another option was using the wattle and daub technique, um, which if you think of medieval buildings or Tudor-style half-timbered houses, the ones where you can see the exposed Mm. thick structural timbers, and then in between they'll have kind of, often it's painted white, but the kind of filler in between those 
pieces of structural wood. Mm-hmm. Um, so this technique of creating the filler between the structural timbers is called wattle and daub. And in Sydney, they used thin branches from an abundant shrubby tree that could be woven together to form large patterns, that is the wattle, and then covered with soil, clay, and dry grass to form the, the daub. And then that would be a kind of wall that you could slot into a building. And although this, again, this technique uh, didn't stand up too well over time, especially with Sydney's like thunderstorms and roaring winds mm. at times, the shrubby tree itself soon came to be known as the wattle tree because of its use in this way. And this is why acacias with their beautiful yellow flowers, uh, which are all over Sydney, are still known as wattles today in Australia. That is so cool. I've often wondered about this, not enough to find out because I imagine it wouldn't take too long to ascertain but the connection between the wattle being like the acacia and wattle and daub because i was like surely since i have medieval associations with it as you do it wasn't invented here yeah (laughs) or anywhere where wattles are native so how did that come to be okay cool it's because it was used as a wattle well, do we know where that term originally came from was just always just what you called it oh we're shoving the wattle in now and then we'll daub it uh, actually, I don't know the etymology of, of wattle and daub as a technique. Fair enough. All right. So really, we, we've gone over some of the ill-fated, but uh, but with long-lasting ramifications in terms of naming and uh, still being sites around Sydney of the different types of wood that they used. Um, really, it's the discovery of clay and the beginning of brick productions in the Brickfields area that you could start moving away from using timbers so much. And also sandstone quarries, of, of course, became... Uh, significant uh, means of getting material for building more impressive colonial buildings. Okay, and do we... Sorry, when was the era when bricks and sandstone kind of kicked in? Uh, bricks quite quickly. Uh-huh. Um, within a few years, I think they started the, the brick fields. Sandstone, I don't have any precise information on, but I definitely think of Sydney to this day as often a city of bricks or a city of sandstone uh, in terms of the kind of everyday structures that you see around. Yeah, I assume that's because all the wood ones burned down. Yeah, could have been that, but also could just be that... They weren't built. <laughs> wood, yeah, wood yep. wasn't a very yep. abundant or useful uh, uh, resource. So, yeah, it's definitely, a, I think, something that you see every day in the everyday architecture of the city. Yep. Eventually, the colonists do find that um, there's kind of better quality eucalypts up the Lane Cove River, especially in the Field of Mars area, which is still, uh, I think there's a Field of Mars parkland kind of near Ryde. Yep. Um, cemetery, big cemetery. Yeah, it gives its name to quite a lot of places. And actually the suburb of Mars Field itself comes from the, this Field of Mars area, which was an early grant given by Philip, Governor Philip, uh, to some, I think, people associated with the military, which is where the Mars roman god okay kind of comes in yep. uh, it's a bit it's of a, a weird bit of a tenuous yeah. long thing yeah yeah the lane cove river definitely has a significant history of of logging for eucalypts and but it was still very hard difficult to work with very hard timber very um exhausting uh, manual labor for predominantly the convicts who were in the mm. saw pits trying to work with this uh, eucalyptus i wonder if that was sydney blue gums because they're kind of found on the north shore up in north shore primarily and they're quite tall and straight and they almost went extinct in the mid 20th century because they were i assumed it was because of residential development primarily but there's only a couple of places left that have natural stands of blue gum but 
there was this push in, I don't know, some point in the 20th century to plant them as a street tree and in backyards and stuff to kind of, you know, keep the species going or whatever. Oh, okay. So they're, they're, you see them around in totally random contexts as well as their kind of last few native reserves in um, little parklets around the North Shore. Yeah, fascinating. It could well be. I don't, I don't have any more information about those eucalypts. But yeah, definitely it is a wood that, that can be used and has has some extraordinary properties it's just it was quite hard for them to work with in these early days because of the poor quality tools that they had and the need to season it correctly so that it doesn't warp or split which they either weren't patient enough to do or again didn't have the the resources to wait that long or um to do it in the correct conditions Mm -hmm. so basically we're going to get now to the discovery of this wonderful wood red cedar (laughs) that the people are a lot more enthusiastic about and the important thing I think to, to consider here is that there's very different di- different soils and different geographies around Sydney and that although we're kind of in the inner city area and around the harbour, very much a sandstone dominated uh, area, if you start venturing west, which uh, they inevitably did, especially once they uh, have a settlement in Parramatta, mm-hmm. They're very interested in rivers, again, because they're, they're are very good for creating nice um, sediments for high-quality agricultural land. And once the Hawkesbury and Nepean are kind of stumbled upon by exploring parties and then settled over time by colonists, that's where they find red cedar. Okay. Yep, in the Hawkesbury and the Nepean. Yeah, actually more the Hawkesbury. Uh-huh. That's closer to Sydney than I thought. When you were talking about this story initially, I was quite pleased because I thought you'd finally done a story that was only tenuously related to Sydney. But the Hawkesbury, <laughs> as far as I'm yeah. concerned... is it's part of Sydney, yeah. Right? yeah. So when people think of vast tracts of thick rainforest where there were huge amounts of red cedar, wasn't the Hawkesbury. Yeah. So it's maybe not the most famous place for having it, but it is the first place where they found red cedar. Uh-huh. And it's because of this very high quality soil that uh, is washed down through the river system. And all of the area along the Hawkesbury River at this time was incredibly dense rainforest, which at that time, confusingly, the term for this was brush. Mm -hmm. Which when I think of brush, I think of like tumbleweed and like little shrubs kind of environment. I don't know if you have any associations with the word brush. I think of impenetrable but low heathy right okay but i don't see it as somewhere you want to walk through okay (laughs) (laughs) well it's definitely uh, impenetrable Mm -hmm. brush um but it would have had soaring gigantic trees with thick vines between them ferns incredibly dense almost impossible to get through the only way to kind of navigate through it would be following aboriginal paths which they quickly discovered on these um journeys to uh try to find out more about the Hawkesbury River. Mm-hmm. There, there are amusing records of them getting only a couple of miles in a day because they were just tramping through incredibly dense forest. Yeah. So they find red cedar here and fairly quickly they recognize that it's a, a significant wood. So Philip in 1791, so this is only kind of three years into the colony, he sends a letter off to Britain accompanying a ship called the Gorgon, explaining that he has sent some species of the timber of this country. And amongst all of these pieces of timber, there was some pits on planks of cedar from the Hawkesbury. 
And in London, they found this to be strong, durable, easily worked wood, uh, which took a polish very, very well. And this is a significant part about the red cedar is that you can polish it up to an incredibly fine luster and it shines and has almost like a mirror-like quality to it. It's very, very shiny, very deep red. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of that image of, I don't know, if you think of like a, a 19th century reading room or something like that you know like a very fancy room with lots of red my apartment is full of rich mahogany yes except red cedar yeah (laughs) this would have also been known in sydney that it was very high quality wood and had many other other qualities to it that made it very uh, desirable so firstly it was very rot resistant that was a a big bonus meant that they weren't going to have the same problems we talked about previously. It was also incredibly lightweight, which is kind of an interesting combination. It's very fine grained, but also very lightweight, which also means that it floats, which lots of wood does. I mean, if I think of wood stereotypically, I always, I think that it always floats, but there are lots of timbers that are actually denser than water and sink and eucalyptus being Mm -hmm. a very, very dense and hardwood sinks. Yeah which is very inconvenient back in this time when transporting things is quite hard. Again, this is only three years into the, into the colony. They're not exactly kind of flush with railroads and, uh, well, it's also before railroads, you know, like yeah. transporting things is difficult Absolutely. and they don't have loads of ships mm-hmm. moving stuff around very rudimentary roads and like past Parramatta, no roads really. So moving things is going to happen along the waterways and it's much easier rather than getting a ship to come and pick up all of the wood to just cut these trees down and then to get them into the water and wait for them to be carried downstream by high waters. Mm, yep. So they would strap lots of enormous, enormous logs together, create rafts that would then be floated down the river. And that was a really easy way of getting very high quality timber straight out of the Hawkesbury, out to Broken Bay, and they could bring it around to Sydney. It's such a one of those really, for me, vivid images of, of like 19th century industrialization was just these huge, like it's like there's, a, there's some great photos around of people. It's, they're awful, but people chopping red cedar down on the North Coast where they are giants. Um, and it's sort of like the same stuff you see in California with the sequoias, like these two tiny men with a huge saw just going at this monster tree. And then the, the next sort of image in the sequence is it, floating down a river um, that's swollen with with flood, basically. And it, I just cannot... Um, you go to some of these rivers and it's just impossible to imagine what it would have been like with a 100-metre-long tree drifting down the middle of it. The other thing I wonder about it is how on earth they stopped them from just going out to sea. Yeah, I think there was probably quite a lot of wastage. <laughs> That's definitely a recurrent theme. And with the value of this wood now that it's uh, been logged out, yeah, it's criminal to think of the amount that was wasted. But I guess at the time, it was just a matter of getting it out as quickly as possible to make as much money as quickly as possible. Yeah. Um, but I, yeah, I think, think there were just people waiting to collect it at the bottom uh, if it made it that far. And there probably would have been, it would have gone all over the place. Yeah. Oh, the destruction of the river ecosystem must have just been staggering. All these bends where the trees were just piled up and created these weird blockages and it would have been a disaster. Yeah. The other thing to note, which is interesting, you were saying that the destroyed ecosystems. And when you're first talking about your associations with Red Cedar, you were saying, well, you know, if you go to a rainforest now, you won't see them in there because they've all been cut out. And the interesting thing as well is if you think of the Hawkesbury, you don't think of a rainforest at all, really. You think of kind of agricultural land. And that's the case with a lot of these places that were 
very dense, rich rainforests. They were rainforests because they had incredibly high quality soil. They're, they're always either along rivers, like important rivers, because you were talking about the Maclay River mm-hmm. a little while ago being important for Red Cedar. The Hunter River is going to come into our story. And then up near Byron Bay, there's a, a lot of river systems that had a lot of Red Cedar. So it's either sediment-rich soil along rivers, or it's in uh, volcanic soils. Uh, So this is the case near uh, Kayama, which was also a really uh, significant uh, red cedar hotspot in the early years of the colony. So all of this land now is more or less agricultural land around the kind of Kayama's like dairy farming. Mm -hmm. The hunter has also kind of a lot of agriculture where they would have been. Oh, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So the... The cutting down of cedar often kind of preceded the creation of agricultural land. So you would go and strip out the cedar, burn the rest, and burn the rest, and then turn. And then eventually, kind of farmers would come in and and turn it into agricultural land. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot of these rainforests just that you wouldn't even know there was a rainforest there. You're just like, oh, this is kind of like a nice, nice rolling hills in the in the case of Kayama, beautiful dairy land. But it was nothing like that mm-hmm. back in the original uh, ecosystem. So before we go any further, I thought we could just dwell a little bit on what cedar looked like a little bit more and what kind of tree it is. Yeah, so as I said, this tree extends down past Kayama area, but interestingly, no further. So it's a fluke of geography that, that where this first settlement was created by the British, was it was very close to the southernmost extent of this tree species. The interesting thing is that it extends a long way north past Australia. Ah. But for a long time, I think Australian pride and also the vagaries of biology meant that there was claimed that this was a distinct Australian species. Yeah. This also makes it a little confusing and difficult to research because it's gone through many different scientific names. Mm-hmm. So initially it was called Cedrella, but now it's known to be a tuna. Um, so a toon tree. It's often called Tuna Australis. You can tell there that that's a Australian mm-hmm. Australian tune. That belief was long held by Australian botanists that it was a distinct species, but it's now considered to be Tuna ciliata, which is a species of tree that extends all the way through northeast coast of Australia, all the way up into Indonesia, and then up all all the way through Southeast Asia, across to India, and even Pakistan. Okay. And have any of these places been better at managing their stands of cedar than we have? Well, I knew that you would ask that, and I don't actually know the the full answer. I believe that it was used at this time. British East India is also a significant user of wood for for naval purposes. Mm. And the Indonesians don't have the best contemporary track record on um, old growth forest either. Yeah, so I'm not sure, for instance, that maybe there's a red cedar in Burma that hasn't been cut out. I don't Mm -hmm. really know. But what I do know is that it's actually commercially grown now in other areas of the world so there is some in south africa and zimbabwe Mm. uh, in hawaii interestingly and i believe there's also some commercial plantations in brazil okay yeah so as to what the tree actually looks like the most significant feature of this tree for probably for the the amateur biologist amongst us is that it is one of the very few uh, deciduous trees on the eastern seaboard of australia Okay, so it would have stuck out like a sore thumb to them in 1791. Indeed. Well, yeah, exactly. It looks out of place. It definitely doesn't fit our kind of image of just eucalypts everywhere. Um, And it also, as you said, stuck out like a sore thumb because it's losing its leaves. They do turn, I believe, you know, a shade of kind of orangey 
brown, but the most stunning visual display is in spring when it grows its new buds and they are a very, very vibrant red, ready pink. And so if you're a cedar getter navigating your way through thick forest, as long as you in early spring found your way to a vantage point, you could look over huge tracts of land or of thick rainforest and just point out every single one of these gigantic trees because their foliage would emerge from the canopy and there would just be this brilliant red splotches throughout the forest and then they could just mark that down often with the aid of aboriginal guides and then go through the forest and clear it all out cool uh so yeah beautiful feature of these trees but sadly also a complete giveaway (laughs) yeah so you know how you have are they colonizers the plants that if you get a, a the fire through a field uh-huh. the very first trees that start to grow in yep. that kind of um, empty field and then mm-hmm. you have kind of the later trees that only grow in the right conditions when mm-hmm. there's already a bit of a canopy established yeah i don't know what the um, terminology for that is i don't either yeah so the red cedar is a, a really clear example of a tree that needs to grow within a well-established and healthy rainforest system to grow to this spectacular size and height and majesty that uh, it was recorded in the early days of the colony and that made it such a significant timber Mm -hmm. for, you know, over a hundred years. So when it grows in thick rainforests, it will grow incredibly straight because it's seeking the sun uh, in Mm -hmm. that small patch in the canopy that's open. It won't have its first limb sometimes for, I think, 20 or 30 meters. Yeah, that sounds about right because it's probably near the top of the of the other species canopy. Yes. And then once it gets up there, it's like, okay, good, spread out. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't grow in these conditions, which it, these conditions don't really exist in many parts of Eastern Australia anymore, mm-hmm. there's no way that it can achieve this because of a pest known as the cedar tip moth. Initially, I thought, okay, this is a classic story of colonial destruction, right? They've cut down all the trees and they've introduced a pest that will Excellent. kill them. But actually, the interesting thing is uh, it's, it's a slightly more nuanced story because the cedar tip moth is not an introduced species. It's native to this area, which is also why, as I said, the commercial plantations are not in areas that right. the red cedar is native to. Okay. <laughs> you need to take it away from its natural uh, habitat to be able to grow it commercially where this pest doesn't exist. Uh, so it's not actually a pest in a way. It's a it's a kind of got a symbiotic relationship with the red cedar in the original yeah, ecosystem the that they exist totally in. out of balance. So the the weight has shifted to the moth. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. So this moth basically it lays its eggs on the tip of the sapling tree, so a young tree. The larvae dig in and eat into the protruding tips of the tree, which makes it get stunted in its vertical growth and split out lots of new branches and so that it becomes a far shorter tree with a wide canopy rather than a dead straight tree for an incredibly long way with the canopy spreading right at the top Mm, okay so this wouldn't happen in a rainforest because the cedar tip moth doesn't lay its eggs in the shade which is interesting for a moth i always think of them loving the dark places but it loves to lay its eggs in bright sunlight okay Uh, So if you try to plant a red cedar tree just in a field... In a plantation, yeah. (laughs) It it will not work. (laughs) So one thing that I do know, and this is, again, this is because they've tried a little bit to do plantations and it doesn't work, is that the uh, red cedar tree actually secretes an aroma that is particularly 
appealing to the cedar tip moth. So it's it's actually asking for this moth to come and lay its eggs on the yeah. tree. So it's really that there's a strong relationship between the two. And for me, at least, as you were saying, once it gets above the canopy, it makes sense for it to spread out as much as it wants. Mm. It would make sense to me that it wouldn't be a problem for it to secrete oils that attract the moth once it was above the canopy. And that's fine for it to do spreading out then. And it is only now that you don't have the shaded structure of these dense rainforests that it stunts the tree to, to then only be not particularly tall. They're still quite beautiful trees. Mm. Even when they have been stunted, they're not tiny little shrivelly things. They're still what we would consider a fairly normal-sized tree. And they, I believe, are still used in sub-suburban areas for, obviously, the, the benefits of being a deciduous tree. They they lose their leaves in uh, winter You'd when you're sunlight. You'd want to make damn sure that that moth was going to come along if you planted one of them in your backyard. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Though, if one didn't, you would have a very valuable piece of timber in yeah. about 80 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the the timber now on secondhand markets actually worth a, a lot of money. I think bidding for old skirting boards that are thick, wide, big boards of red cedar sometimes will fetch thousands of dollars. Mm. Well, this feels like the right time to mention that I got particularly excited at a antique furniture auction I had no real business being at and bought you a enormous sack of old uh, banister railings from terrace house staircases. Indeed, yeah. Um, old red which cedar. wasn't especially expensive, but I don't think I've snatched the bargain of the century. I think we just decided because they're quite small bits, they might not be as valuable as we had both <laughs> hoped. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but they're going to make some lovely wooden blocks for the kids and uh, candlesticks. Mm, mm. But what I want to know, Alistair, is do you have any stats on hand about the size of these trees when they grow in those perfect conditions in rainforest that you mentioned? I, I do. The first cedar cutters who were going in and into these pristine rainforests didn't keep particularly good records, as you can imagine. They were very much at the fringes of society. But they're definitely measurements up to 50 meters in height. And you can get around 10 meters in diameter. Wow. So they're, they're huge. Mm. And, and they have very, very buttress roots at the bottom of the mm-hmm. tree. So the very bottom of the tree can be absolutely enormous. Yeah. We'll definitely put some images up on uh, Facebook and Instagram and in the show notes for this episode. Yeah, they really dwarf the people who were going through and cutting them down. And there's a few of reasonable scale still around on the northern rivers, right? Uh, yeah, so I think that the best place to go if you would like to see one is sadly quite a long way from here. It's in the Gadgara National Park on the Atherton Tableland near Cairns. Uh, uh-huh. um, there's an accessible 35-meter tall tree there with a 7-meter diameter. Mm-hmm. And that one is 18 meters of straight trunk until the first branch. Okay, that's the three dimensions with which um, Tuna ciliata is compared. Yeah, so that that's a really big one. There are, however, some other places where you... So in the botanical gardens, we've gone and seen a red cedar mm-hmm. in Sydney. But that one, I definitely think that the cedar tip moth has got to because it's not at all straight. Yeah. It kind of bends sideways uh, and then fans out a little bit. That's, I think, the second oldest or one of the oldest trees in the uh, botanical gardens uh, and has a nice little plaque underneath it. Um, and they're also in... Urimba near Gosford. There's a place called uh, the Forest of Tranquility. Oh, you know it. I do. Everyone knows it who drives there the road to Newcastle somewhat regularly. It's signposted. <laughs> it's 
catchy name. The Forest of Tranquility, I believe, also has some red cedar, but they're not old growth. Mm-hmm. But you can go and see them there. And what about up around Dorigo? I think I feel like I've seen some red cedars up at Dorigo. Yeah, look, there, there would be some in other places. Basically, the, the places you're most likely to find them are remote and inaccessible rainforests that would have been hard to get to to log. Mm-hmm. Or land that's now become a national park that hopefully became a national park early enough to save a few. Cool. Yeah. So the other thing I was wondering about the red cedars is, is the term red cedar used as a common name for a completely unrelated species? And where does the whole, where's cedar come from? Because I think of it as a very American thing, which might just be because of their culture spreading over here, but uh, it might be for a valid reason as well. Yeah, so anyone who's been to a lumberyard probably has seen what I believe is called Western uh, Incense Cedar, which is Western being Western United States. It's commercially grown. And the incense in the incense cedar there is a good entry into the meaning of the term cedar. It's a, a word used historically for trees with a very strong scent and red wood which you can imagine doesn't map perfectly onto biological relations between trees. And that, um, that name cedar goes all the way back to the Greeks who used it to denote two completely biologically unrelated trees that both had fragrant red wood. Cool. They weren't to know that. They didn't have no. genome sequencing. <laughs> Interestingly, Western incense cedar is the wood used in lots of pencils. So if you like the smell of yeah. pencils when you sharpen them, which I do, that is uh, the smell of cedar. Nice. You're chopping down your own little cedar. <laughs> yeah. The family of trees that it is important to kind of think about when we think of red cedar, Australian cedar, is the mahogany family, mm-hmm. which is the Meliaceae family. Mahogany is, a, I think, a word that we all associate with very decadent, expensive furniture from this 18th century period. Mm-hmm. Ripped from the forests of Central America and transported to smoking rooms in Britain and the yeah. like. Um, and red cedars kind of riding on the coattails of this American mahogany. But that actual tree that was the most desirable is the Sweetenia mahogany. Mm-hmm. That, however, is in a family relationship with all kinds of different trees, including the tunes, of which uh, Tuna ciliata, our red cedar, is one. So all of these come under the Meliaceae, and they uh, have similar characteristics in this beautiful red wood that was very in vogue during this period up through to the end of the 1800s as interior decoration for paneling and window frames and all kinds of things like that skirting boards but also especially for furniture as you were saying so armchairs and yeah couches things like that and did um, red cedar turn out to be a useful building material and save the fledgling colony from its construction woes Uh, yeah so it was it was used quite extensively throughout the fittings of any well-to-do house or um, public structure so government house in sydney has a lot of red cedar in the interior especially uh, the the banisters actually amusingly enough are often out of red cedar the gpo in sydney the old post office a magnificent building has a lot of original red cedar interiors town hall as well and then uh, obviously the large manor houses have lots of red cedar in them so like Elizabeth Bay House, for instance, which uh, you mm-hmm. talked about at length in the episode about the Maclays, is famous for having a lot of um, red cedar interiors. So this is a little bit later in the 
history of the colony in Australia. And at this point, the red cedar would have been coming probably from further up the coast. Initially, it probably it was used a lot for shipbuilding, actually, uh-huh. um, in this Hawkesbury red cedar because they just needed to transport things around. It was a really fledgling colony, um, and that was a very important use uh, of wood that could be easily worked and was quite rot resistant to to build ships and move stuff around uh, and then also people could make houses out of slabs of red cedar so what would now be a fortune in red cedar um, if you were on site and just trying to create a small uh, hovel to live in you could use red cedar quite extensively mm-hmm. and i believe you took me to see some red cedar in situ in um, another building that got mentioned in one of our episodes which was sydney's first hospital on macquarie street yeah, I think that there's uh, some in the interior there. We talked to the man at the Sydney Living Museum's headquarters and they have a little library there. I'm not actually able to identify red cedar paneling just by sight or anything like that. So I'm just going on it being dark red wood in nicely fitted out government buildings. But I imagine that a lot of the interiors in buildings like that has red cedar in it. Um, and it's one of those nice things that once you know about it, if you're kind of reading a little pamphlet in any kind of historical house or building and it mentions red cedar, you know a bit of the backstory behind it. They also have um, probably the best resource that I came across for reading about Red Cedar in the, in the library there, which you are allowed to peruse. So this book was written to accompany an exhibition about Red Cedar in Australia, which was put on by the Museum of Sydney in 2004. Sadly, we were but teenagers at the time, Jed, and uninterested in these kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a shame. And we did not make it, but I wish that I had seen that exhibition. If there's one thing making a history podcast brings to light is just how many exhibitions you've missed. Yeah, on, on very niche subjects. <laughs> also, while talking to the really kind librarian at the library there, he mentioned one of the very earliest pieces of furniture that still exists made of red cedar, which is the Macquarie armchair. It is quite a sight to behold. I will post some images on it to accompany this episode it was made for governor macquarie around uh, 1820 Mm -hmm. with the raised bent arm with dagger which is the coat of arms of the macquarie family protruding significantly from uh, behind the neck Mm, and that's in the library so that is part of the powerhouse collection there were actually multiples of this chair made there were three of them made one of them is in saint james's church Mm mm-hmm One is in the collection of the Powerhouse Museum, and the other one is in the collection of Macquarie University, fittingly. Yeah, I believe it's it's the chair of the Chancellor of Macquarie University, which is quite cool. Career goals. (laughs) Get 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 your bum on that chair. (laughs) Very cool. All right, so just to to wrap up, I know I've thrown a lot of uh, promises. I'll talk about uh, Kayama and the Hunter and areas around Sydney that was significant for red cedar the hawkesbury the government basically quite quickly wanted to control this rampant cutting of cedar because it was a very valuable commodity potentially of uh, significance for the navy and there was a lot of money to be made in taxing it Mm -hmm. from what i can gather they weren't particularly successful in controlling it because as we've talked about many times on this show it's quite hard to actually have a handle on what's going on in very wild areas yeah. and yeah from your single outpost of the british empire <laughs> yes uh, so there were multiple government decrees saying that you couldn't cut cedar unless you had a permit and maybe as the hawkesbury became more densely inhabited and there was more local uh, policing going on and and also 
presumably a lot of the cedar was already cut out of it. The real profits were to be made by um, sourcing cedar from the Kayama region and less so the hunter because there was a lot more government control there. Mm-hmm. Generally, as I've said, the, the cedar cutters would have been on the fringes of society. Apparently, the forest was so thick and dense that they kind of came out looking ghostly white because they hadn't seen the sun for such a long time. And then they were paid fairly high wages for their work, which was a gripe of the wealthier members of uh, Sydney society who were always upset that wages were so so high in Australia compared to back home in Britain. But they would then uh, kind of considered to always blow all of the money they earned on grog um, and uh, lie around kind of uselessly for three or four days, completely intoxicated. I love that this narrative has been existing in Australian society for over 200 years. That is incredible. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Don't don't pay them. They'll just blow it all in yeah. alcohol. Uh, yeah, so in Kayama, a lot of the cedar would have been cut out and then kind of shipped back up to Sydney somewhat uh, surreptitiously and then uh, sold to private traders who would have then shipped it off somewhere else or sold it within the colony to cabinet makers and uh, other people working with the wood. Mm-hmm. Um, the first European settler in Kayama was David Smith, and he began a cedar cutting in 1821 and built the very first permanent house in Kayama. Mm-hmm. So by the end of the 1820s into the 1830s, Kayama was considered to be supplying about nine-tenths of the cedar being shipped to Sydney. Uh-huh. And there were often six or more large boats loading cedar um, and unloading supplies in tiny little Kayama Harbour. So it's kind of uh, quaint to think of that being a thriving uh, harbour for the trade of red cedar. Yeah, that's so different to how you think of Kayama today. Yeah. As for the hunter, the government had established the the hunter settlement as a far more under-the-thumb penal colony to begin with. That was at Newcastle, right? Yes. So in 1804, the instructions sent along with the ship, which was to create what is now the city of Newcastle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there were some instructions sent on, quote, the settlement of Coal Harbour and Hunter's River. And these instructions stated that after taking the necessary measures for securing the stores, you are to cause the prisoners to be employed in getting as many coals as possible at hand and procuring cedar from the upper part of the harbour. Awesome. I love the getting of coals. <laughs> Just pick them up, chuck them in the boat. Yeah, well, I mean, if, we, if what we learned last fortnight about coal cliff is true, it was, that was the case. Just grab them. Yeah, I do believe that that was the case. The coal is still a real mainstay of the economy of the Hunter area. But to begin with, it was it was founded on the twin pillars of, of red cedar and coal. Mm, cool. Um, and this is actually commemorated in the city of Newcastle by a very fringe, fairly unknown sculpture. Uh-huh. I'm very excited to hear about this. Yeah. It's a piece of conceptual art, let's say. It doesn't necessarily look like anything recognizable in the world, mm-hmm. but it stands at 14 meters high. It's uh, apparently the tallest sculpture in Newcastle, and it's on King Street across the road from Market Town Shopping Centre. It's called the Foundation Seed, and it's inspired by red cedar trees, and most specifically the way in which their seeds are dispersed in winged pods. Looks a little bit like a pod from a tree that's kind of fluttering in the wind. I have never seen that thing in my life. Yeah, it's a bit of a sly one. It's also interesting in that red cedar didn't grow necessarily precisely in the Newcastle area. It was further up the Hunter River system, as we saw from the quote for the instructions of the original settlement. So actually towns like Maitland uh, were very significant in the trade of cedar and the movement of cedar down towards um, the port. 
And this is still commemorated in a motel much further up the Hunter in Musselbrook. It's called the Red Cedar Motel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, in my various travels around the state, I must say that more often than not, motel names seem to have nothing to do with the place that they inhabit. But this one, this one's a historical gem. Okay. Uh, there's also a lot of locations with the word mill or sawyers in the name to do with processing it, using saw pits to strip it into planks. And so those kind of locations are scattered throughout coastal New South Wales, uh, near river systems that were rich in red cedar. But it's not the easiest piece of history to find out about and notice in the landscape unless you really know what you're trying to find. Mm. Cool. Well, that's really awesome, Alistair. Thanks so much for sharing all about red cedar. You're clearly very passionate about the topic. Yeah, I got a bit excited about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. I I was looking forward to talking it through with you. Yeah, it's been very interesting. And it's the same old case of things I've previously visited. I want to visit again with a sharper eye. In particular, the area around Dorigo. I actually think I may have engaged in a tag race game around a particularly large roadside red cedar. It might not have been a red cedar, it might have been another enormous rainforest tree that we found. Now it's alongside the side of a road, so it's quite accessible, but I recall it being not anywhere near a river. So perhaps that was one of those ones you alluded to that managed to escape the axe. Yeah, as long as it's kind of up in the upper reaches of a creek or something like that, it would have been harder to to get down and transport away. And a lot of that um, wood was actually only taken out, if it was at all, in the 20th century with kind of tractors and modern equipment like that that was able to haul it off. Right, so we kept at it. We kept at it into the 20th century. Yeah, and actually on that note, the one final thing I really want to add, there's an interesting history around the last major project that was constructed in Red Cedar, because I find it particularly strange to think that they knew that this would be the last building project that would have a lot of cedar paneling. And it's in Canberra, uh, which doesn't have any cedar growing anywhere near it, but it's the um, National Library in Canberra. That's awful (laughs) that they knew what they were doing to willfully do that for the last building is particularly obnoxious. Very Canberran perhaps. (laughs) Yeah. And this room, they really went to town. It's the manuscript reading room. And in this video, which I'll also link, it's almost off-putting how much Red Cedar is in it, to be perfectly honest. Well, I guess at least they went hard, right? For the last hurrah. Yeah, exactly. Cool. Well, Jed, I'm glad that we were able to talk about Red Cedar for so long. And now I know at the very start, you were eager for your clue. <laughs> this, this is where it might be because I only to. just wrote it in a, in a hurry before this episode began. In your hotel room <laughs> in Rose Hill. Mm-hmm. So this is a bit of a long clue this week. There's a few, uh, there's a few bits and pieces in here to perhaps pique your interest. So how many puns next episode will be like your episode from season one about Louisa Collins, about a person hanged at Darlinghurst jail. Oh, okay. This is a story that reaches its climax along the road to Gundagai, but before it was made famous by Banjo Patterson and Jack O'Hagan. It's a story from that special time and place that somehow came to be seen as quintessentially Australian when white men rode across the countryside doing as they pleased and in some cases like this one paying the price for the privilege and it's exactly the kind of personal interest story that you go in for with that heady mix of mateship crime and perhaps even true love 
Oh, that does sound like a classic Alistair story. <laughs> I, I feel like this one could well be about bushrangers, which we haven't talked about at all. Uh, it might not be, but that's that's kind of where my mind is wandering right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it'll be interesting to hear you do a, a personal interest story. Mm, yeah, well, you know, can't all be infrastructure. <laughs> Cool. Okay. Well, Alistair, thank you so much for telling us that story. It was really fun. Lots of information. We're going to have a few red cedar hunters amongst our listeners. You might even cause a small increase in the price of red cedar banisters, perhaps. (laughs) Hopefully. Hopefully. Um, So thanks, everyone, for listening. And if you'd like to get in touch with us, we always love to hear from you. Our best contact is our email address, storiesfromsydney at gmail.com. Also, during the season, while we're releasing episodes, we post on Instagram and Facebook at Stories from Sydney. So you can catch all that extra material that Alistair's going to bombard you with about Red Seed. I think he's got videos, he's got photos, perhaps even some photos of his own Red Cedar carving handiwork. So if you're on either of those platforms, do follow us there. And we'll see you next fortnight for my story from Sydney.